if you have your Bibles, grab it and go to Luke 20 for me. There's a couple things we're going to cover before we get there, but uh, Luke 20 is where we're going to be. Um, if I put it on the ground. So we have the Super Bowl coming up next Sunday, right? Uh, Tom Brady, once again, whatever. But um, if you have not yet got into a missional community, this is one of the easiest ways to get involved. I think all of uh, MC Friday. Are y'all, are y'all doing a party? Cool, leave me high and dry. There we go. There's Rob. Uh, yeah, every MC is going to be having uh, some form of a Super Bowl party next week. Um, so that's one of those low engagement, just come hang out, get to know some of the community there. Uh, but I would encourage you, plan on next Sunday, uh, checking out one of the MCs for the Super Bowl party, watch football, eat chili, uh, get embarrassingly drunk. Whatever you want to do there is fine with us. Um, we're just glad that, I'm just kidding. We're just glad that you're there. Um, so... Getting into the sermon, I need to draw your attention to something real quick. Uh, Ricky is standing back there. Everyone say, hey, Ricky. Ricky does our children's ministry. He's been there from the beginning. And when you look at Ricky, just everyone look at Ricky real quick. Ricky does not seem to be too intelligent, does he? But, but, there's there's a but coming. This dude is incredibly smart. Like, probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Uh, and so we were at, we have a preaching team, me, Dylan, and Ricky get together and help write these sermons. And so we were hanging out Thursday working on some sermon prep. And I said, have my cake and eat it too. And he said, actually, he's kind of like Oscar from The Office. Actually, those who giggled, I just love you because you know what I'm talking about. Uh, actually, the correct saying is, uh, instead of have my cake and eat it too, it's eat my cake and have it too. Which just, I don't know if that blows anyone else's mind, but everything seemed right in the world when I found that out. Because that makes so much more sense than have my cake and eat it too, but I want to eat my cake, but I still want to have my cake too. So he goes on this long history lesson about that's how they caught the Unabomber, and uh, because like he was using that phrase correctly in his manifesto, and so that, what is it, literary... Linguistic forensics, yes. So went on this, I don't know how he knows all this stuff, uh, but just got my brain, my wife can attest to this, when I get something in my head, I just like obsess over it. So I'm like, where did all these sayings come from that we just say that we might be saying wrong? So I'm like, what is the one that I say the most? Um, and I think as I was Googling and just kind of picking up some research, um, the one that I always say is close but no cigar. Does anyone else say that? Can I say a cigar in a Baptist church? Is that allowed? Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars, so get off me. So, uh, close but no cigar. I, I always say that when I'm like, well, I'm going to Google. I want to be like Ricky and find out where this comes from. Now, mid-20th century, which just is a fancy way of saying 1940, um, during the fairs, like you go now to the fairgrounds and you win, you get some really cheap toy or like some goldfish. Have y'all been to the fairs where you actually win goldfish? It's a horrible idea. I don't know why PETA gets so upset about everything else, but not that. Um, Back then, you would actually win a cigar, like a legitimate, you won the prize, here's a cigar. So when you would miss, they would say, close, but no cigar. So that just got my mind, again, I'm, I don't know if you want to know how my brain works. It's kind of scary, but that just got me going on some moments of my life where it was like a close, but no cigar moment that was like deeply painful. Because most of those, it's not like a fairground kind of moment. When you say close, but no cigar, it's like a, oh no, that was like shifted my life a little bit. So close, but no cigar moments in your life. I think my number one one when I was a sophomore in college, I tried out for this drum line. I know I'm a nerd, but tried out for this drum line. And I was literally the, like, they had nine snare players. I was number 10. So I was pleading with this guy, like, is there any way, like, 
can I kill one of these guys? Like, is there any way that I can get that ninth spot? He's like, no, you can, you know, you can do this, you can do that. Like, go try out for the bass drum line. Like, there's other things you can do, but, but you're not there. And he said to me, man, I'm sorry, so close, but so far. And that, that moment just kind of like, oh, gosh. And we've all had those moments, close but no cigar. We're so close but so far. And so what we're going to see this morning in Luke 20 is this idea that we can be so close but so far to the gospel. And the ramifications aren't like, oh, I didn't make drumline that year. No big deal. Which that was the same year I broke my foot, so I wouldn't have been able to do it anyways. But the ramifications for so close but so far in light of the gospel have massive implications. So Luke chapter 20, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. Luke chapter 20, verse 41. Excuse me. Luke chapter 20, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greeting in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So let's pray. And Father, as we dive into your word this morning, would you speak truth to us? Father, would we not just come here and gather, read some passages, talk about it, and then leave the same? Jesus, but we're praying, we're we're begging you that you would do something in the midst of us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you will do. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Now, just to kind of catch you up on where we are, I don't know where you guys have gotten involved with us, but um, this is the third school year that we are going, that we've been in the book of Luke. So we will finish around Easter time, first week in May. Um, And so between now, really between November and now, we're spending all of this time in the last few days of Jesus's life. So we've had the triumphal entry a couple weeks ago. We preached on that. Um, Now this is probably Tuesday, depending on what theologian you read, Tuesday or Wednesday, Jesus dies on Friday. So between now and Easter, we've timed it really perfectly where Easter will actually be the death and resurrection. Between now and Easter, mid-April, we're focusing in on the last few days of Jesus's life primarily because the book of Luke does. So if you go all the way back to Luke chapter one, why did Luke write this to to Theopolis to firm him up in what he's heard so that he would be certain the things of Jesus Christ? So I think there's a reason then that that Luke camps out so much so in the last few days of Jesus's life so that Theopolis and that we as a church can be certain in the things that we know of Jesus Christ. But here's what we do know. Here's where the story begins to pick up. Um, he's almost at his death. Everyone knows that. Again, if Wednesday or Thursday, his impeding death on the cross is going to be Friday. Everyone knows that. Everything's going around. So the chapter 20 is all of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders. It's all their last attempt to get in front of Jesus and make him look like a fool in front of the crowds. Because there were massive crowds. And we've talked a couple weeks ago. I mean, crowds is much, like, would fill this room about 10 times 
If you would picture the fo- a football field covered shoulder to shoulder with people, that's the kind of crowds that were coming out to see Jesus. And all the religious leaders hated it. So they were doing everything they could in front of people to belittle him, to bring him down, to ruin his credibility. But every time they tried, they failed. And you know, I don't know if you grew up with siblings, but have you ever got to that point, especially growing up, if you do it now, we need to have a separate conversation. But when you're in an argument and you lose and all you wanna do is just hurt that person, Like I have nothing left to bring to this argument other than a sucker punch to the nose, right? Like that's the point of frustration and that's what we're seeing here, that they cannot disprove Jesus and they're getting so frustrated, they just wanna hurt him. And so yes, we're finishing out Luke chapter 20 today, but this is also an ending of something even bigger here that we have to see. Uh, Go to verse 40. Verse 40 is a huge turning point. It's a huge ending in the life of Jesus. They no longer dared to ask him any questions. They tapped out, they're done. The Pharisees, the religious leaders that were trying to disprove Jesus, verse 40 says they tapped out. They finished, they're, they're done, this, this is it. We're just gonna kill this guy. There's no way we can outsmart him. There's no way we can prove that we're superior to him. We're done, murder is the last option. So when we pick up this week in verse 40, or verse 41, he says to them, so they've tapped out, but he has one last question. Now, if you just kind of put yourself into that, when you have these guys that are trying to make you look like a fool, trying to kill you, trying to outsmart you, and they finally tap out, that would just kind of be like, okay, I'm, I'm done with you, forget out of here, let's, let's be done with this fool, right? But he didn't stop, he turned it to them. He had one last ditch effort. Now, Jesus obviously is way bigger of a man than any of us would ever be. But who would, now that we've won, now that there's victory, now that we've proven ourselves superior to these guys, turn it around one last time. And you don't have to flip there, but Mark 12 is a very similar uh, story that's happening in the other synoptics and gives us a real keen idea of why he keeps going. Mark 12, 34 says this, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So right when this is happening, right when everyone gives up, Jesus gives us a hint of why he turns and asks this question, because they're not far from the kingdom. This is Jesus' last evangelical attempt with these guys, that they're so close to understanding the gospel that they're right there at it. And so this is his last, so we get to zoom in, we get to focus this morning on Jesus's last ditch effort to see these guys go from death to life. So now with all that kind of in the background, let's pick it up in verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So if you're in a missional community, raise your hand. Okay, um, we're, this semester as missional communities, we're going through a book by Randy Newman called, Randy Newman, is that right? I always say the other, who's the dude that makes salad dressings? Paul Newman, yes, that's what I'll always say, but I was right that time. Uh, Paul Newman does not, he makes salad dressings. Randy Newman wrote this book. Um, and question evangelism, learning, teaching us how to become better disciple makers who share the gospel. The first thing that he starts with is ask good questions. Ask heart-piercing questions, not how was your day, but, but get to the heart of it to generate good discussion. So we see Jesus doing this masterfully. How can they say 
that, Christ, that the Christ is David's son. He's addressing the disciples, but everyone is still there. Everyone's still listening. Now that seems like a really strange question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? But again, if we look at the synoptics, if we look at Matthew 22, Matthew records this a little different, but gives us an insight on what it is. You don't have to flip there, I'll, I'll read it for us. Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And then they answered the son of David. So Jesus asked them a question first, who is the Christ? They say the son of David. Then we pick it up in Luke. How can they say that Christ is David's son? But he asked them the most important question that we can ever answer in our entire life, right? Who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? It's a very similar question that he asked his disciples back in Luke 9, verse 20. He said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So he asked them this, this last ditch effort, guys, you've seen everything that I've done. You've seen me heal. You've heard me teach. Just answer this last question for me, Pharisees, religious leaders. I'm not giving up on you yet. Who do you think the Christ is? And he even gives them a little wiggle room. Like, you don't think I'm Jesus Christ. I get it. But who do you think the Christ is? So they answer the son of David. And look, they're not wrong. I mean, just do this real quickly. Flip over to Matthew, just the two books over. Go to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Matthew 1, 1. So when they answer the son of David, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They answer the son of David. Matthew 1, 1 puts it pretty clear. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Were they wrong? No, I mean, you can keep going through the entire book of Matthew, it's used 10 times. In Luke, it's used four times. Even just a couple days ago in the Bible story, when the triumphal entry came in, what were people singing? It's proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. So they weren't wrong by saying that Jesus is the son of David. Here's what one commentator said, that David was promised that one of his offsprings would rule forever. Jesus was called the son of David while, while he was here on earth. He was born in David's city, Bethlehem. The gospel records that various people of six different occasions acknowledged Jesus as the son of David. This is a messianic title. Jesus never denied that he was the son of David. In fact, on Palm Sunday, he received it as praise and worship of the people. So when the Pharisees, when the religious leaders said, who is the Christ? Oh, he's the son of David. Yes, they're, they're correct in this. But Jesus is about to go... He's about to pull a Jesus. Verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Wait a second. But he is. Christ is the son of David. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Davis, the, David thus calls him Lord. How is he his son? So what Jesus is doing is going back and quoting Psalms 110, which everyone, up until Jesus' death, all the Jews would say, this is the messianic psalm, right? This is the prophecy of what Jesus is gonna be like. So let the Lord say to my Lord, let God say to Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make all the enemies your footstools. 
So David is saying he's Lord. So how can they say he's the son of David when David himself says, he's not my son, he's my Lord. So what we see here is the past of Jesus and the future of Jesus colliding and they don't understand. They don't understand. So so what then is the problem? If they were right, how could they be so wrong? If they were so close, how could they be so far? I mean, I could just end, as I'm reading this story, just the thoughts of my mind, just that uh, the 1940s guy from the fair pops up and goes, close but no cigar, Pharisees, like, and then disappears and runs out. Like, that's how I read this story. Maybe that's just me, fine. Because they understood scripture, but they missed that he was Lord. So yes, he's the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And they only knew half of it, and they stopped there. That's where the problem is, that's where the problem sits, is that they were so close, but so far. And I would argue based on scripture, they were so close that they were blinded by their closeness. That they had the inability to zoom out and say, I know what the Bible says and I see it in front of me, this must be the king, this must be God. So they can say he's the son of David, but he's not the savior of David. They can say he's the son of David, but he's not actually their Lord. And we see this perfectly, Romans 10, nine through 10, puts it this way. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart of one believes as is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So I'll be honest, when I first started reading this and kind of prepping for this, I wasn't that burdened or excited about this text, just to be honest. I mean, that's part of expository preaching, there we go. When we just work through the books of the Bible, that sometimes you get a passage, you're like, ah, I'm gonna let Ricky preach this one because I don't wanna preach it, right? Hey Dylan, you wanna preach? Because this, this text sounds boring. Uh, can I just be real for a second? Jeez, I could see your eyes of condemnation. There's no condemnation other than Christ. Get out of here. So I'm studying this, but the more I read it, the more I get into it, the more burdened I get. And and here's why. Here's what I mean. We're going to spend the rest of the time fleshing some of this out. Because I think the church in the South and the Bible Belt, I I would even argue 99% of us might be so close but so far because we look good and we smell good and we have it all together and we're doing the right things and we're coming to church and we own a Bible and we read the Bible and all these things that make us look so close, but are we so close that we're actually far? Are we blinded by the closest of what we should be doing and not the should be worshiping? And my wife and I had an opportunity to speak at a marriage conference yesterday and where's my wife? She's not even in here. It's like, oh, there she is. Stinking killed it. Like, I was so proud of her yesterday. And I said to the people, look, I don't, I don't know you. You're probably never going to ask me to come back, and that's fine. So here's what I want you to know. I don't believe any of you. You're sitting there, and you're holding hands, and you look sweet and cute and cuddly. Some of you might be having an affair. Because the people that look all put together, there's just a skeptic part of me. Because I've been in ministry now for 10 years, and I've seen the people that I thought those people have it together, and once I get to know them, they're the most broken people in the room. So I had to just be honest with them yesterday. I go, I don't, I don't believe any of you. So church, if I could just be so bold, I don't believe any of you. I don't believe myself. We have to compare ourselves with scripture. There's this whole work out your salvation with what? 
fear and trembling, that we need to look into this. Now, am I saying some of you aren't saved? Of course not. I think you are. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation so that I can get some more notches on my belt and blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm doing. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's pursuing, he's asking, he's questioning, who do you think the Christ is? And he's saying this in the presence of the Pharisees and the disciples. And we see just in a couple pages, right? What does Peter do? Screws it all up. So even though the closest to Jesus still can screw it up. So I think that we have to answer this question, who is the Christ? And I know that you can quote me, he's the son of David, he's a good guy, he loves us. But do we know it? Do we actually believe that he's Lord? So, so as I was prepping through this and praying through this, there's basically three different categories that I could come up with. Um, the first we talked about all the time is the cultural Christian. That you went to VBS and you memorized Philippians 4.13 and you had a t-shirt that had like this fake, uh, like, what's that called? A little trophy thing. What's that called? Metal, yeah, the fake little metal, and like in the middle it said Philippians 4.13, and, and on the back it said First Baptist Alpharetta 1992, like that was the thing that you, I still have that shirt, um, just kidding, I threw it away, but I can still vividly remember what that shirt looks like, right? I don't think it'd fit me, it'd be that fat guy and a little, like not a good shirt to put on. But we did that, we grew up in that church and we understood how things work, and I'm, praise God for that, I'm excited that my kids get to grow up around you guys, I really am. I mean, my seven-year-old walked in this morning looking like a college student. I'm like, you need to go put on some clothes, girl. You're looking, not that she didn't have clothes on, but she just looks too big. Like, go put on Dora the Explorer and, and like be a seven-year-old, not looking like the college girls. I'm grateful for that. But if we don't constantly ask ourselves this question, if there hasn't been that moment where Jesus just isn't the son of David, but he's my God, he's my Lord. I'm laying everything down at the foot of him. If there's not that moment where our desires change, our things change, if we operate more out of obligation and guilt than conviction and pushing of the spirit, you might be a cultural Christian. That if we just do what we think we're supposed to do, if you're here this morning because you don't wanna get a lecture from your mom this afternoon when she asked you where you went to church, we need to have a conversation. If you're not desirous of the word of God, but you just feel like you have to do it because people are telling you to, we might need to have a conversation. Because you know that he's the son of David, but you don't yet know he's king. You know that what you're supposed to do, but you haven't yet surrendered to the Lord. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, man, so close but so far that I've just been burdened this week. What, what if this is some of you? And what if a, somehow as a church we've pushed off this message, just look pretty, just be good, get a study Bible, you'll be fine. Read some dead guys and then just show up to church on Sunday. You'll, you'll be good. And so you're just going through the motions constantly, but, but there's no lordship there for you. I mean, you're, you're probably sitting there in worship when everyone's singing in worship going, like this music's not even that great. What are people excited about? Not saying that our worship team isn't fantastic, but you just don't understand what worship is. It's not for you. One of the things, again, that we covered yesterday, there was a pastor named Justin Davis who wrote a book called Beyond Ordinary. Right when I was starting to get into church planting, this was before church planting, when I was just toying around with the idea. Um, these, <clears throat> y'all know Stephen Furtick? 
Okay, so Stephen Furtick was at this conference. Uh, Pete Wilson was at this conference. All these like guys like, here's how I grew my church from one to 10,000. I'm like, man, I'm, like, I don't wanna be that guy. Justin and Trisha Davis stood up on the platform and they said, here's how I had an affair with my children's director and ruined my family and ruined my church. Yes, that's what I'm probably gonna deal with more. Children's, or Ricky's the children's director, so maybe not that far. <laughs> but that is the, you don't know, what are you talking about? I know. But, but that's the temptation. So as I'm starting to listen and starting to just plug into, man, when we become pastors, we're going to tempt it beyond all temptation. One of the things that we talked about in the book yesterday is that we're more, or talked about the seminar that came from his book, Beyond Ordinary, is that we are more concerned with confession because we don't yet know the power of concealment. That we don't want to confess who we really are, so we just keep concealing it because we don't know what's going to happen when that lid explodes. So as cultural Christians, we're just concealing constantly. Just do what I'm supposed to do. Don't tell anyone how I really feel. Don't actually join a DNA because then I'm gonna have to talk. So just, just kind of stay comfortable, like look good enough to fit in here, but I'm not really gonna buy into this. You just keep concealing and concealing and concealing. And I hope and pray that's not the vibe you've caught from us, that you can be real honest and vulnerable here. We can ask good questions about the Bible here that we can answer Jesus's questions about who he is. But you cult cultural Christians are so close, but so far. So maybe that's not it. Maybe the next thing is just the religious nuts. Let's go to verse 47 or 45 through 47 because Jesus specifically addresses these kind of people. After he asked the Pharisees, who is the Christ? Here's how he responds. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace. In the best seat in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast who devour widows and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So until verse 47, you kind of have to understand, I mean, these people have got it together. I mean, they've got the robes, the people wanted to talk to them in the marketplace, that they don't demand these seats at the banquet, so they're just given to them, that these have all their stuff together. But 47 really turns it around and says, who devour widows' houses, who use their power and their authority to steal in the name of give to God, right? I mean, I'm just, just candid as can, candid can be, I would love a jet. That'd be awesome. But that means that we're gonna have poor widows giving everything in the same of, name of the gospel so that these people can get richer and fly around the world because they don't wanna be around sinners even though they're evangelists. You don't know what I'm talking about, I'll tell you later. So here's what we have to, these religious nuts, these people that act like they have it all together. They're the ones that you're probably gonna go to for advice. They're the ones that look good, smell good, taste good. They, they have everything figured out. That last part didn't come out right. I'm sorry. I don't mean you're licking their arms. I just, that was not in my notes. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> and I thought I could skip over till the front row. Body language changed. So all <laughs> Mackenzie, can we rewind that podcast tape and take that whole part out? It would be great. But verse 47, I think, has an interesting word that we don't use a ton. I think this is more of, well, I was just kidding, Mackenzie, you're good. Uh, Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. 
That just simply means that there's an attempt to make something that's not true appear true. So they're trying to make their prayers that aren't true appear true. I think that is the definition of this religious person that Jesus is calling out. That you're trying to make everything that you do that isn't true to appear true. So your worship that isn't true, you do it to try to make it appear true. You lead Bible studies, not that they are true, but you're trying to make it appear true. You want to get on leadership, you want to do this, you want to do on that. Not because it's true, not because Jesus is Lord, but you want it to appear true because you're more concerned about your appearance. Right? The cultural Christian, I mean, if I could just devour or describe the cultural Christian in one phrase, it would be, you're more worried about your comfort than God's glory. But for the religious guys, the people they're calling out, they're more worried about their control than God's glory. And both of them are not believers. Both of them are not regenerated because they're more concerned about themselves than God's glory, than the Lord. And here's where everyone jumps to. So let me just straight out of the gate. I love the people that I'm about to address. Maybe it's my personality, maybe it's just the way I'm wired, but I love these people. These are the outright rebellious, I hate everything about Jesus, the church, and God. I love these people. Why? Because they're honest. When you deal with cultural Christians or you deal with these religious fanatics, you can't get a truth in edgewise. You can't understand what they're really, because they're protecting, they're putting up walls. But when you talk to the rebellious people, they're just rebellious. Here's what I think. You're an idiot. I mean, I'm glad I know. Here's what I think, that you guys should pay taxes. Churches should pay taxes. Bro, we rent, I'm good. You can keep doing that all day long, right? Like but those are the people that I'm drawn to because why? They're honest. They're not these like, oh, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, but in their hearts, they know they're full of it. These guys, Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not King, but at least they're honest about it. You can't move forward. You can't actually have a conversation until someone's honest. I mean, you look at all this and I think it gets skipped over. Sometimes I wish Jesus would just come back and walk around with us so that we could see who we actually hung out with because newsflash, it wouldn't be me. It wouldn't be most of us. We would be appalled at the people that Jesus was hanging out with because he was gravitated towards who? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. Jesus spent all of his time pursuing these people the main interactions he had with the religious folks was when they were coming in trying to throw shade and tell him he's wrong. He spent his life pursuing the rebellious. So if you want to know who Jesus is as Lord, then drop the fake stuff and actually be who you are. Ask good questions, receive good answers. But we've got to stop pretending here that the enemy is the rebellious ones. No, those are the prize. Those are the ones that we're pursuing. Those are the ones that we're running after. Because they would at least freely admit that Jesus is not Lord. Jesus is not King. And this is why we see this last ditch effort with Jesus pursuing them. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way, and I've quoted this a ton. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is secretly looking for God. So these people, even in their rebellion, they're trying to do everything to find God, to try to find happiness, to find hope. So if we truly have happiness, if we truly have hope, then why don't we pursue them? Why don't we go after them? Maybe it's because we're the religious that aren't actually born again. Maybe it's because we're the cultural Christians that aren't actually born again. 
But if we are, if we are, if we know that Jesus is not only the son of David, but also the Lord, the King, God Almighty, if we are, then what does that life look like for us? Why was he preaching to these disciples? Don't be like that. Don't be careful of these guys. Don't do that. I think in this story, I mean, if you can just kind of read the emotions of this. I mean, this is Jesus's what? His last effort. And listen, it's not because he's given up on these guys. It's because he knows he's about to die. We see the rest of what we're going through until Easter is him pouring his last bits of truth and wisdom into his disciples. But we have to get this, guys. He did not give up on them. They killed him. I was telling Sydney this morning, I've kind of walked into this group and it's called the Spurgeon Fraternal, which just sounds, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, just a bunch of pastors that get around and talk theology and blah, 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 blah. It's kind of fun. Uh, I feel like I should be wearing a bow tie and writing with a fountain pen. I definitely don't fit into these guys, but it's fun to listen to them talk. But one of the guys talked about, uh, I forgot which preacher he was talking about, but he said, you know what I respect most about him is that when he preaches about hell, there's not, uh, there's always a tear in his eye. That when this pastor preaches about hell, he's not doing this out of joy He's not doing this out of celebration. He's not even doing this out of a calloused heart. That when he talks about the reality of where the rebellious and where the religious and where the cultural Christians are going, he does so with a tear in his eye. And as Jesus is making this last ditch effort, this is a conjecture, but I can almost see a tear in his eye. Going, you're so close. You're so close to the kingdom of God. Just answer this question. How is Christ the son of David, but not also his Lord? Because he said the Lord is the Lord. How are these things not connected? You're so close. There was not an inch, an ounce of forget you guys. There was tears over Jerusalem because they were so close, but so close where the gospel doesn't go to anywhere. We could be so close to understanding the kingdom of God and still go to hell. And that is the reality. If you're not the cultural Christian, if you're not the religious, if you're not the rebellious, then this should be the broken hearted in here. That those other three people, the ones that are sitting around us right now are so close. But hell is a thing. Hell is a place. Hell is real. And we can't talk about it. We can't read this parable. We can't, without understanding that Jesus is going, you're, you're not going to be with me in eternity. You're not going to be in heaven with me. So please, listen, you've got to answer this question. Who is the Christ? And if he's any, anything other than the Lord, you're going to hell. And then two or three days later, they're going to kill him. They're going to seal their fate because they can, cared more about their control their comfort, their own power over the king of the universe standing in their midst. That they were so close. So close. So what then do we do? I mean, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we end the gathering, the preaching of God's word with communion. 
that we take the bread, which represents his body. We dip it in the juice, which represents his blood. But the main reason we do this is to always examine our hearts. Is to go, what is God speaking to me? What truth is coming out of this? In church, I, th- I think we need to have a long time of examination. I think there are people in this room that have been concealing their lack of faith for far too long but you look good and you look pretty and you know the right answers that you know that Jesus is the son of David. So you fit into these Bible studies and accountability groups and and you've been made it this far without having to admit what you already know. I mean, listen, I'm not that old, but I've been around long enough to know that the spirit is busting some of you guys right now. That your heart is leaping outside of your chest I don't know you, I don't know your story. I'm not preaching conviction, Jesus is. So we can't go take the sacraments. We can't pretend like we're gonna take communion and everything's good and fine if you're not a believer because Corinthians say we're drinking judgment upon ourselves because we're pretending to be a Christ follower and we're not. And in good conscience, as one of the elders here, we cannot let you keep pretending like you're a believer when you're not. Because so close with the gospel is hell. So close but so far has real, honest ramifications. So as we get ready to take communion, let's examine our hearts, church. And listen, there's no judgment here. Rob's gonna be standing at this table. Greg's gonna be standing over here. I'll kind of be floating as elders. We wanna talk and pray with you. But if you walk up and say, man, I've been pretending for 30 years, we're not gonna go, oh, well, there's the door. No, we're gonna weep with you, we're gonna pray with you, we're gonna celebrate with you. But here's what I know, church. Luke 20, verse 40. For they no longer dare to ask him any questions. That they sealed their own fate stop pursuing and stop questioning, stop asking. I mean, I, I don't know what else I can do other than get on my knees to plead with you to examine when your own heart is. And for some of us, we need to respond with repentance this morning. I've been playing the game for too long that I am so close, but that is so far. And I know that Jesus is the son of David, but he's also now my Lord and Savior. And if we can honestly, church, if we can honestly say that, praise God for that. I'm, I'm excited that we have people that can honestly say that. Then our intentions when we leave here is we are gonna interact with people that are so close, but so far. And verse 40 is a reality for them. At some point, they're gonna stop asking questions. So we need to have an eagerness in our soul. So I'm gonna pray. Self-examination will start to happen. Communion will be open. Like I mentioned, some of the elders will be standing back there. But let's just have a time of examining our hearts, examining our souls. And if we're one of those first three, let us finally, for the first time, confess that. We know Jesus is the son of David, but today I can say, Jesus is my Lord. So let's pray. And Father, thank you for 
allowing us to live where we live and have the technology that we do and be able to get the education that we are. Father, but we know that the time and place that we are in offers a true disadvantage to us. Because we can pretend we've known all the answers to say and how to respond and how to act in church since we were born. That we know how to look pretty and act like we have our stuff together and not let anyone see us sweat. That we know all of that. We are so close, but we are so far. So Jesus, I, I pray that as we begin to examine where our hearts are, Father, that your spirit would speak truth to us. That our church would not be a culture of pretending, but that we would be a culture of love and forgiveness and gently leading people to repentance. God, because we are all messed up, that we're all a savior in need, or a sinner in need of a savior, that we need you So let us quit pretending like we don't. And so for those of us in this room that the spirit is convicting and your heart is on fire, I'm grateful. I'm grateful the spirit works. I'm grateful that the word does not return void. And I'm praying for you specifically that you would respond that you wouldn't let this be a fleeting moment, but this would be the day for you where Jesus stops only being the son of David and is finally your Lord and Savior because you are so close. God, I pray for us as believers, the ones that we are freely admitting you are our Lord, that we are nothing without you. pray that hell would become more of a reality for us. And the eagerness would jump out of our mouth to see people know you. That you would give us boldness and courage and a faith like none other. But Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in this moment. God, as we examine our hearts before you, would you speak? So church, I'm just gonna leave us here. When you're ready, we can take communion. But I'm not gonna say amen, I'm gonna let the prayers roll as you examine your heart before this loving Savior is looking us in the face, pleading with us. Because it's his kindness that's leads us to repentance. It's grace and mercy that's drawing us in. I pray that we would respond.